Today's read, The New Jim Crow, Mass Incarceration in the Age of Colorblindness by Michelle Alexander, Chapter 3, The Color of Justice. Imagine you are Emma Faye Stewart, a 30-year-old single African-American mother of two who was arrested as part of a drug sweep in Hearn, Texas. All but one of the people arrested were African-American. You are innocent. After a week in jail, you have no one to care for your two small children and are eager to get home. Your court-appointed appointed attorney urges you to plead guilty to a drug distribution charge, saying the prosecutor has offered probation. You refuse, steadfastly proclaiming your innocence. Finally, after almost a month in jail, you decide to plead guilty so you can return home to your children. Unwilling to risk a trial and years of imprisonment, you are sentenced to 10 years probation in order to pay $1,000 in fines as well as court and probation costs. You're also now branded a drug felon. You are no longer eligible for food stamps. You may be discriminated against in employment. You cannot vote for at least 12 years and you are about to be evicted from public housing. Once homeless, your children will be taken from you and put in foster care. A judge eventually dismisses all cases against the defendants who did not plead guilty. At trial, the judge finds that the entire sweep was based on the testimony of a single informant who lied to the prosecution. You, however, are still a drug felon, homeless, and desperate to regain custody of your children. Now place yourself in the shoes of Clifford Reynolds, another African-American victim of the Hearn drug bust. You returned home to Bryan, Texas to attend the funeral of your 18-month-old daughter. Before the funeral services begin, the police show up and handcuff you. You beg the officers to let you take one last look at your daughter before she is buried. The police refuse. You are told by prosecutors that you are needed to testify against one of the defendants in a recent drug bust. You deny witnessing any drug transaction. You don't know what they're talking about. Because of your refusal to cooperate, you are indicted on felony charges. After a month of being held in jail, the charges against you are dropped. You are technically free, but as a result of your arrest and period of incarceration, you lose your job, your apartment, your furniture, and your car. Not to mention the chance to say goodbye to your baby girl. This is the war on drugs. The brutal stories described above are not isolated incidents, nor are the racial identities of Emma Faye Stewart and Clifford Reynolds. They're not random or accidental. In every state across our nation, African Americans, particularly in the poorest neighborhoods, are subjected to tactics and practices that would result in public outrage and scandal if committed 
in middle-class white neighborhoods. In the drug war, the enemy is racially defined. The law enforcement methods described in Chapter 2 have been employed almost exclusively in poor communities of color, resulting in jaw-dropping numbers of African Americans and Latinos filling our nation's prisons and jails every year. We are told by drug warriors that the enemy in this war is a thing. Drugs, not a group of people, but the facts prove otherwise. Human Rights Watch reported in 2000 that in seven states, African Americans constitute 80 to 90% of all drug offenders sent to prison. In at least 15 states, blacks are admitted to prison on drug charges at a rate from 20 to 57 times greater than that of white men. In fact, nationwide, the rate of incarceration for African-American drug offenders dwarfs the rate of whites. When the war on drugs gained full steam in the mid-1980s, prison admissions for African-Americans skyrocketed nearly quadrupling in three years and then increasing steadily until it reached, in 2000, a level more than 26 times the level in 1983. The number of 2000 drug emissions for Latinos was 22 times the number of 1983 emissions. Whites have been admitted to prison for drug offenses at an increased rate as well, The number of whites admitted for drug offenses in 2000 was eight times the number admitted in 1983, but their relative numbers are small compared to blacks and Latinos. Although the majority of illegal drug users and dealers nationwide are white, three-fourths of all people in prison for drug offenses have been black or Latino. In recent years, rates of black imprisonment for drug offenses have dipped somewhat, declining approximately 25% from their zenith in the mid-1990s, but it remains the case that African Americans are incarcerated at grossly disproportionate rates throughout the United States. There is, of course, an official explanation for all of this. Crime rates. This explanation has tremendous appeal before you know the facts, for it is consistent with and reinforces dominant racial narratives about crime and criminality dating back to slavery. The truth, however, is that rates and patterns of drug crime do not explain the glaring racial disparities in our criminal justice system people of all races use and sell illegal drugs at remarkably similar rates. If there are significant differences in the surveys to be found, they frequently suggest that whites, particularly white youth, are more likely to engage in illegal drugs and drug dealing than people of color. One study, for example, published in 2000 by the National Institute on Drug Abuse, reported that white students use cocaine at seven times the rate of black students, use crack cocaine at eight times the rate of black students, and use heroin at seven times the rate of black students. 
That same survey revealed that nearly identical percentages of white and black high school seniors use marijuana. The National Household Survey on Drug Abuse reported in 2000 that white youth aged 12 to 17 are more than a third more likely to have sold illegal drugs than African-American youth. Thus, the very same year, Human Rights Watch was reporting that African-Americans were being arrested and imprisoned at unprecedented rates. Unprecedented rates. Government data revealed that blacks were no more likely to be guilty of drug crimes than whites and that white youth were actually the most likely of any racial or ethnic group to be guilty of illegal drug possession and sales. Any notion that drug use among blacks is more severe or dangerous is belied by the data. White youth have about three times the number of drug-related emergency room visits as their African-American counterparts. The notion that whites comprise the vast majority of drug users and dealers and may well be more likely than other racial groups to commit drug crimes may seem implausible to some, given the media imagery we are fed on a daily basis and the racial composition of our prisons and jails. Upon reflection, however, the prevalence of white drug crime, including drug dealing, should not be surprising. After all, where do whites get their illegal drugs? Do they all drive to the ghetto to purchase them from somebody standing on a street corner? No. Studies consistently indicate that drug markets, like American society in general, reflect our nation's racial and socioeconomic boundaries. Whites tend to sell to whites, blacks to blacks. University students tend to sell to each other. Rural whites, rural whites, for their part, don't make a special trip to the hood to purchase marijuana. They buy it from somebody down the road. White high school students typically buy drugs from white classmates, friends, or older relatives. Even Barry McCaffrey, former director of the White House Office of National Drug Control Policy, once remarked, if your child bought drugs, it was from a student of their own race, generally. The notion that most illegal drug use and sales happens in the ghetto is pure fiction. Drug trafficking occurs there, but it occurs everywhere else in America as well. Nevertheless, black men have been admitted to state prison on drug charges at a rate that is more than 13 times higher than white men. The racial bias inherent in the drug war is a major reason that one in every 14 black men was behind bars in 2006 compared with one in 106 white men. For young black men, the statistics are even worse. One in nine black men between the ages of 20 and 35 was behind bars in 2006, and far more were under some form of penal control, such as probation or parole. These gross racial disparities simply cannot be explained by rates of illegal drug activity among African Americans. What then 
does explain the extraordinary racial disparities in our criminal justice system. Old-fashioned racism seems out of the question. Politicians and law enforcement officials today rarely endorse racially biased practices, and most of them fiercely condemn racial discrimination of any kind. When accused of racial bias, police and prosecutors, like most Americans, express horror and outrage. Forms of race discrimination that were open and notorious for centuries were transformed in the 1960s and 1970s into something un-American, an affront to our newly conceived ethic of color blindness. By the early 1980s, survey data indicated that 90% of whites thought black and white children should attend the same schools. 71% disagreed with the idea that whites have a right to keep blacks out of their neighborhoods. 80% indicated they would support a black candidate for president, and 66% opposed laws prohibiting intermarriage. Although far fewer supported specific policies designed to achieve racial equality or integration, such as busing, the mere fact that large majorities of whites were, by the early 1980s, supporting the anti-discrimination principle reflected a profound shift in racial attitudes. The margin of support for colorblind norms has only increased since then. This dramatically changed racial climate has led defenders of mass incarceration to insist that our criminal justice system, whatever its past sins, is now largely fair and non-discriminatory. They point to violent crime rates in the African-American community as a justification for the staggering number of black men who find themselves behind bars. Black men, they say, have much higher rates of violent crime. That's why so many of them are locked up. Typically, this is where the discussion ends. The problem with this abbreviated analysis is that violent crime is not responsible for mass incarceration. As numerous researchers have shown, violent crime rates have fluctuated over the years and bear little relationship to incarceration rates, which have soared during the past three decades, regardless of whether violent crime was going up or down. Today, violent crime rates are at historically low levels, yet incarceration rates continue to climb murder convictions tend to receive a tremendous amount of media attention which feeds the public sense that violent crime is rampant and and forever on the rise but like violent crime in general the murder rate cannot explain the growth of the penal apparatus homicide convictions account for a tiny fraction of the growth in the prison population in the federal system for example Homicide offenders account for 0.4% of the past decade's growth in the federal prison population, while drug offenders account for nearly 61% of that expansion. In the state system, less than 3% of new court commitments to state prison typically involve people convicted of homicide. As much as half of state prisoners are violent, violent offenders, 
but that statistic can easily be misinterpreted. Violent offenders tend to get longer prison sentences than nonviolent offenders and therefore comprise a much larger share of the prison population than they would if they had earlier release dates. In addition, state prison data excludes federal prisoners who are overwhel overwhelmingly incarcerated for nonviolent offenses. As of September 2009, only 7.9% of federal prisoners were convicted of violent crimes. The most important fact to keep in mind, however, is this. Debates about prison statistics ignore the fact that most people who are under correctional control today are not in prison. As noted earlier, of the nearly 7.3 million people currently under correctional control, only 1.6 million are in prison. This caste system extends far beyond prison walls and governs millions of people who are only on probation and parole, primarily for nonviolent offenses. They have been swept into the system, branded criminals or felons and ushered into a permanent second-class status, acquiring records that will follow them for life. Probationers are the clear majority of those who are under community supervision, 84%, and only 19% of them were convicted of a violent offense. The most common offense for which probationers are under supervision is a drug offense. Even if the analysis is limited to people convicted of felonies, thus excluding extremely minor crimes and misdemeanors, non-violent offenders still predominate. Only about a quarter of felony defendants in large urban counties were charged with a violent offense in 2006. In cities such as Chicago, criminal courts are clogged with low-level drug cases. In one study, 72% of criminal cases in Cook County, Chicago had a drug charge, and 70% of them were charged as Class 4 felony possession, the lowest-level felony charge. None of this is to suggest that we ought not be concerned about violent crime in impoverished urban communities. We should care deeply. And as discussed in the final chapter, we must come to understand the ways in which mass imprisonment increases, not decreases, the likelihood of violence in urban communities. But at the same time, we ought not be misled by those who insist that violent crime has driven the rise of this unprecedented system of racial and social control. The uncomfortable reality is that arrests and convictions for drug offenses, not violent crime, have propelled mass incarceration. In many states, including Colorado and Maryland, drug offenders now constitute the single largest category of people admitted to prison. People of color are convicted of drug offenses at rates out of all proportion to their drug crimes, a fact that has greatly contributed to the emergence of a vast new racial undercast. These facts may still leave some readers unsatisfied. The idea that the criminal justice system discriminates in such a terrific fashion when few people openly express or endorse racial discrimination 
may seem far-fetched, if not absurd. How could the war on drugs operate in a discriminatory manner on such a large scale when hardly anyone advocates or engages in explicit race discrimination? That question is the subject of this chapter. As we shall see, despite the colorblind rhetoric and fanfare of recent years, the design of the drug war effectively guarantees that those who are swept into the nation's new undercast are largely black and brown. Black and brown. This sort of claim invites skepticism. Non-racial explanations and excuses for the systemic mass incarceration of people of color are plentiful. It is the genius of the new system of control that it can always be defended on non-racial grounds given the rarity of a noose or a racial slur in connection with any particular criminal case. Moreover, because blacks and whites are almost never similarly situated given extreme racial segregation in housing and disparate, disparate life experiences, trying to control for race in an effort to evaluate whether the mass incarceration of people of color is really about race or something else, anything else, is difficult, but it is not impossible. A bit of common sense is overdue in public discussions about racial bias in the criminal justice system. The great debate over whether black men have been targeted by the criminal justice system or unfairly treated in the war on drugs often overlooks the obvious. What is painfully obvious when one steps back from individual cases and specific policies is that the system of mass incarceration operates with stunning efficiency to sweep people of color off the streets, lock them in cages, and then release them into an inferior second-class status. Nowhere is this more true than in the war on drugs. The central question then is how exactly does a formerly colorblind criminal justice system achieve such racially discriminatory results? Rather easily, it turns out, the process occurs in two stages. The first step is to grant law enforcement officials extraordinary discretion regarding whom to stop, search, arrest, and charge for drug offenses, thus ensuring that conscious and unconscious racial beliefs and stereotypes will be given free reign. Unbridled discretion inevitably creates huge racial disparities. Then, the damning step. Close the courthouse doors to all claims by defendants and private litigants that the criminal justice system operates in racially discriminatory fashion demand that anyone who wants to challenge racial bias in the system offer in advance clear proof that the racial disparities are the product of intentional racial discrimination, i.e. the work of a bigot. This evidence will almost never be available in the era of colorblindness because everyone knows but does not say that the enemy in the war on drugs can be identified by race. This simple design has helped to produce one of the most extraordinary systems of racialized social control the world has ever seen.
and choosing the role of discretion. Chapter 2 described the first step in some detail, including the legal rules that grant police the discretion and authority to stop, interrogate, and search anyone, anywhere, provided they get consent from the targeted individual. It also examined the legal framework that affords prosecutors extraordinary discretion to charge or not charge, plea bargain or not, and load up defendants with charges carrying the threat of harsh mandatory sentences in order to force guilty pleas, even in cases in which the defendants may well be innocent. These rules have made it impossible These rules have made it possible for law enforcement agencies to boost dramatically their rates of drug arrests and convictions, even in communities where drug crime is stable or declining. But that is not all. These rules have also guaranteed racially discriminatory results. The reason is this. Drug law enforcement is unlike most other types of law enforcement. When a violent crime or a robbery or a trespass occurs, someone usually calls the police. There is a clear victim and perpetrator. Someone is hurt or harmed in some way and wants the offender punished. But with drug crime, neither the purchaser of the drugs nor the seller has any incentive to contact law enforcement. It is consensual activity. Equally important, it is popular. The clear majority of Americans of all races have violated drug laws in their lifetime. In fact, in any given year, more than one in 10 Americans violate drug laws. But due to resource constraints and the politics of the drug war, only a small fraction are arrested, convicted, and incarcerated. In 2002, for example, there were 19.5 million illicit drug users compared to 1.5 million drug arrests and 175,000 people admitted to prison for a drug offense. The ubiquity of illegal drug activity combined with its consensual nature requires a far more proactive approach by law enforcement than what is required to address ordinary street crime. It is impossible for law enforcement to identify and arrest every drug criminal. Strategic choices must be made about whom to target and what tactics to employ. Police and prosecutors did not declare the war on drugs, and some initially opposed it, but once the financial incentives for waging the war became too attractive to ignore, law enforcement agencies had to ask themselves, if we're going to wage this war, where should it be fought and who should be taken prisoner? That question was not difficult to answer given the political and social context. As discussed in chapter one, the Reagan administration launched a media campaign a few years after the drug war was announced in an effort to publicize horror stories involving black crack users and crack dealers in ghetto communities. Although crack cocaine had not yet hit the streets when the war on drugs was declared in 1982, 
its appearance a few years later created the perfect opportunity for the Reagan administration to build support for its new war. Drug use, once considered a private public health matter, was reframed through political rhetoric and media imagery as a grave threat to the national order. Jimmy Reeves and Richard Campbell show in their research how the media imagery surrounding cocaine changed as the practice of smoking cocaine came as the practice of smoking cocaine came to be associated with poor blacks. Early in the 1980s, the typical cocaine-related story focused on white recreational users who snorted the drug in its powder form. These stories generally relied on news sources associated with the drug treatment industry, such as rehabilitation clinics, and emphasized the possibility of recovery. By 1985, however, as the war on drugs moved into high gear, this frame was supplanted by a new siege paradigm in which transgressors were poor, non-white users and dealers of crack cocaine. Law enforcement officials assumed the role of drug experts, emphasizing the need for law and order responses, a crackdown on those associated with the drug. These findings are consistent with numerous other studies, including a study of network television news from 1990 and 1991, which found that a predictable use that a predictable us against them frame was used in the news stories with us being white suburban America and them being black Americans and a few corrupted whites. The media bonanza inspired by the administration's campaign solidified in the public imagination the image of the black drug criminal. Although explicitly racial, political appeals remained rare. The calls for war at a time when the media was saturated with images of black drug crime left little doubt about who the enemy was in the war on drugs and exactly what he looked like. Jerome Miller, the former executive director of the National Center for Institutions and Alternatives, described the dynamic this way. There are certain code words that allow you never to have to say race, but everybody knows that's what you mean, and crime is one of those. So when we talk about locking up more and more people, what we're really talking about is locking up more and more black men. Another commentator noted, it is unnecessary to speak directly of race today because speaking about crime is talking about race. Indeed, not long after the drug war was ramped up in the media and political discourse, Almost no one imagined that drug criminals could be anything other than black. A survey was conducted in 1995 asking the following question. Would you close your eyes for a second, envision a drug user, and describe that person to me? The startling results were published in the Journal of Alcohol and Drug Education. 95% of respondents pictured a black drug user, 
while only 5% imagined other racial groups. These results contrast sharply with the reality of drug crime in America. African Americans constituted only 15% of current drug users in 1995, and they constitute roughly the same percentage today. Whites constituted the vast majority of drug users then and now, but almost no one pictured a white person when asked to imagine what a drug user looks like. The same group of respondents also perceived the typical drug trafficker as black. There is no reason to believe that the survey results would have been any different if police officers or prosecutors rather than the general public had been the respondents. Law enforcement officials, no less than the rest of us, have been exposed to the racially charged political rhetoric and media imagery associated with the drug war. In fact, for nearly three decades, news stories regarding virtually all street crime have disproportionately featured African-American offenders. One study suggests that the standard crime news script is so prevalent and so thoroughly racialized that viewers imagine a black perpetrator even when none exists. In that study, 60% of viewers who saw a story with no image falsely recalled seeing one, and 70% of those viewers believed the perpetrator to be African American. Decades of cognitive bias research demonstrates that both unconscious and conscious bias lead to discriminatory actions even when an individual does not want to discriminate. The quotation commonly attributed to Nietzsche, 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 that there is no immaculate perception, perfectly captures how cognitive schemas, thought structures, influence what we notice and how the things we notice get interpreted. Studies have shown that racial schemas operate not only as part of conscious, rational deliberations, but also automatically, without conscious awareness or intent. One study, for example, involved a video game that placed photographs of white and black individuals holding either a gun or other objects, such as a wallet, soda can, or cell phone, into various photographic backgrounds. Participants were told to decide as quickly as possible whether to shoot the target. Consistent with earlier studies, participants were more likely to mistake a black target. I don't think it's a mistake, but mistake a black target as armed when he was not, and mistake a white target as unarmed when, in fact, he was armed. This pattern of discrimination reflected automatic, unconscious thought processes, not careful deliberation. I have to pause in this reading because these studies, this author is is a intellectual and, you know, this is a very Eurocentric viewpoint and the facts are the facts, but it's very skewed because trying to act like they don't know they're racist is a bunch of crap. It's just a bunch of crap. Just moving forward. (sighs) Back to reading. Most striking, perhaps, is the overwhelming evidence 
that implicit bias measures are disassociated from explicit bias measures. In other words, the fact that you may honestly believe that you are not biased against African Americans and that you may even have black friends or relatives does not mean that you are free from unconscious bias. Implicit bias tests may still show that you hold negative attitudes and stereotypes about blacks, even though you do not believe you do and do not want to. In the study described above, for example, black participants showed an amount of shooter bias similar to that shown by whites. Not surprisingly, people who have the greatest explicit bias as measured by self-reported answers to survey questions against a racial group tend also to have the greatest implicit bias against them against them and vice versa. Yet, there is often a weak correlation between degrees of explicit and implicit bias. Many people who think they are not biased prove when tested to have relatively high levels of bias. Unfortunately, a fairly consistent finding is that punitiveness and hostility almost always increase when people are primed, even subliminally, with images or verbal cues associated with African Americans. <sighs> Another pause in the reading. My own opinion here. Especially when cues have been queued up for 400 years. Back to the reading. Oh my God. Um, in fact, studies indicate that people become increasingly harsh when an alleged criminal is darker and more stereotypically black. They are more lenient when the accused is lighter and appears more stereotypically white. This is true of jurors as well as law enforcement officers. Viewed as a whole, the relevant research by cognitive and social psychologists to date suggests that racial bias in the drug war is inevitable. Once a public consensus was constructed by political and media elites that drug crime is black and brown, once blackness and crime, especially drug crime, became conflated in the public consciousness, the criminal black man, as termed by legal scholar Catherine Russell, would inevitably become the primary target of law enforcement. Some discrimination would be conscious and deliberate, as many honestly and consciously would believe that black men deserve extra scrutiny and harsher treatment. Much racial bias, though, would operate unconsciously and automatically, even among law enforcement officials genuinely committed to equal treatment under the law. Whether or not one believes racial discrimination in the drug war was inevitable, it should have been glaringly obvious in the 1980s and 1990s that an, an extraordinarily high risk of racial bias in the administration of criminal justice was present, given the way in which all crime had been framed in the media and in political discourse. Awareness of this risk did not require intimate familiarity with cognitive bias research. Anyone possessing a television set during this period would likely have had some awareness of the extent to which black men had been demonized in the war on drugs. The risk that African Americans would be unfairly targeted 
should have been of special concern to the U.S. Supreme Court, the one branch of government charged with the responsibility of protecting discreet and insular minorities from the excesses of majoritarian democracy and guaranteeing constitutional rights for groups deemed unpopular or subject to prejudice. Yet, when the time came for the Supreme Court to devise the legal rules that would govern the war on drugs, the court adopted rules that would maximize, not minimize, the amount of racial discrimination that would likely occur. It then closed the courthouse doors to claims of racial bias. Wren versus United States is a case in point. As noted in Chapter 2, the court held in Wren that police officers are free to use minor traffic violations as an excuse to stop motorists for drug investigations, even when there is no evidence whatsoever that the motorist has engaged in drug crime. So long as a minor traffic violation, such as failing to use a turn signal, exceeding the speed limit by a mile or two, tracking improperly between the lines, or stopping on a pedestrian walkway can be identified, police are free to stop motorists for the purpose of engaging in a fishing expedition for drugs. Such police conduct, the court concluded, does not, vi- does not violate the Fourth Amendment's ban on unreasonable searches and seizures. For good reason, the petitioners in Wren argued that granting police officers such broad discretion to investigate virtually anyone for drug crimes created a high risk that police would exercise their discretion in a racially discriminatory manner with no requirement that any evidence of drug activity actually be present before launching a drug investigation police officers snap judgments regarding who seems like a drug criminal would likely be influenced by prevailing racial stereotypes and bias they urged the court to prohibit the police from stopping motorists for the purpose of drug investigations unless the officers actually had reason to believe a motorist was committing or had committed a drug crime. Failing to do so, they argued, was unreasonable under the Fourth Amendment and would expose African Americans to a high risk of discriminatory stops and searches. Not only did the court reject the petitioner's central claim that using traffic stops as a pretext for drug investigations is unconstitutional. Unconstitutional. It ruled that claims of racial bias could not be brought under the Fourth Amendment. In other words, the court barred any victim of race discrimination by the police from even alleging a claim of racial bias under the Fourth Amendment. According to the court, Whether or not police discriminate on the basis of race when making traffic stops is irrelevant in a consideration of whether their conduct is reasonable under the Fourth Amendment. The court did, after one caveat, however, the the court did offer one caveat, however, it indicated that victims of race discrimination could still state a claim 
under the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment, which guarantees equal treatment under the laws. This suggestion may have been reassuring to those unfamiliar with the court's equal protection jurisprudence. But for those who have actually tried to prove race discrimination under the 14th Amendment, the court's remark amounted to cruel irony. As we shall see below, the Supreme Court has made it virtually impossible to challenge racial bias in the criminal justice system under the 14th Amendment, and it has barred and and it has barred litigation of such claims under federal civil rights laws as well. Closing the courthouse doors, McCleskey versus Kemp. First, consider sentencing. In 1987, when media hysteria regarding black drug crime was at fever pitch and the evening news was saturated with images of black criminals shackled in courtrooms, the Supreme Court ruled in McCleskey v. Kemp that racial bias in sentencing, even if shown through credible statistical evidence, could not be challenged under the 14th Amendment in the absence of clear evidence of conscious discriminatory intent. On its face, the case appeared to be a straightforward challenge to Georgia's death penalty scheme. Once the court's opinion was released, however, it became clear the case was about much more than the death penalty. The real issue at hand was whether and to what extent the Supreme Court would tolerate racial bias in the criminal justice system as a whole. The court's answer was that racial bias would be tolerated virtually to any degree so long as no one admitted it. Warren McCleskey was a black man facing the death penalty for killing a white police officer during an armed robbery in Georgia. Represented by the NAACP Legal Defense and Education Fund, McCleskey challenged his death sentence on the grounds that Georgia's death penalty scheme was infected with racial bias and thus violated the 14th and 8th Amendments. In support of his claim, he offered an exhaustive study of more than 2,000 murder cases in Georgia. The study was known as the Baldus Study, named after Professor David Baldus, who was its lead author. The study found that defendants charged with killing white victims received the death penalty 11 times more often than defendants charged with killing black victims. Georgia prosecutors seemed largely to blame for the disparity. They sought the death penalty in 70% of cases involving black defendants and white victims, but only 19% of cases involving white defendants and black victims. Sensitive to the fact that numerous factors besides race can influence the decision-making of prosecutors, judges, and juries, Baldus and his colleagues subjected the raw data 
to highly sophisticated statistical analysis to see if non-racial factors might explain the disparities. Yet, even after accounting for 35 non-racial variables, the researchers found that defendants charged with killing white victims were 4.3 times more likely to receive a death sentence than defendants charged with killing blacks. Black defendants, like McCleskey, who killed white victims, had the highest chance of being sentenced to death in Georgia. The case was closely watched by criminal lawyers and civil rights lawyers nationwide. The statistical evidence of discrimination that Baldus had developed was the strongest ever presented to a court regarding race and criminal sentencing. If McCleskey's evidence was not enough to prove discrimination in the absence of some kind of racist, other, racist utterance, what would be? By a one-vote margin, the court rejected McCleskey's claims under the 14th Amendment, insisting that unless McCleskey could prove that the prosecutor in his particular case had sought the death penalty because of race, or that the jury had imposed it for racial reasons, the statistical evidence of race discrimination in Georgia's death penalty system did not prove unequal treatment under the law. The court accepted the statistical evidence as valid, but insisted that evidence of conscious racial bias in McCleskey's individual case was necessary to prove unlawful discrimination. In the absence of such evidence, patterns of discrimination, even patterns as shocking as demonstrated by the Baldus study, did not violate the 14th Amendment. In erecting this high standard, the court knew full well that the standard could not be met absent an admission that a prosecutor or judge acted because of racial bias. The majority opinion openly acknowledged that long-standing rules generally bar litigants from obtaining discovery from the prosecution regarding charging patterns and motives, and that similar rules forbid introduction of evidence of jury deliberations even when a juror has chosen to make deliberations public. The very evidence that the court demanded in McCleskey evidence of deliberate bias in his individual case would almost always be unavailable and or inadmissible due to procedural rules that shield jurors and prosecutors from scrutiny. This dilemma was of little concern to the court. It closed the courthouse doors to claims of racial bias in sentencing. There is good reason to believe that despite appearances the McCleskey decision was not really about the death penalty at all. Rather, the court's opinion was driven by a desire to immunize the entire criminal justice system from claims of racial bias. The best evidence in support of this view can be found at the end of the majority opinion where the court states that discretion plays a necessary role in the implementation of the criminal justice system and that discrimination is an inevitable byproduct of discretion. Racial discrimination, the court seemed to suggest, was something that simply must be tolerated in the criminal justice system, provided no one admits to racial bias. 
the majority observed that significant racial disparities have been found in other criminal settings beyond the death penalty and that McCleskey's case implicitly calls into question the integrity of the entire system. In the court's words, taken to its logical conclusion, Warren McCleskey's claim throws into serious question the principles that underlie our criminal justice system. If we accepted McCleskey's claim that racial bias has impermissibly tainted the capital sentencing decision, we could soon be faced with similar claims as to other types of penalty. The court openly worried that other actors in the criminal justice system might also face scrutiny for allegedly biased decision-making if similar claims of racial bias in the system were allowed to proceed. Driven by these concerns, the court rejected McCleskey's claim that Georgia's death penalty system violates the Eighth Amendment's ban on arbitrary punishment, framing the critical question as whether the Baldus study demonstrated a constitutionally unacceptable risk of discrimination. Its answer was no. The court deemed the risk of racial bias in Georgia's capital sentencing scheme constitutionally acceptable. Justice Brennan pointedly noted in his dissent that the court's opinion seems to suggest a fear of too much justice. Cracked up. Discriminatory sentencing in the war on drugs. Anyone who doubts the devastating impact of McCleskey versus Kemp on African-American defendants throughout the criminal justice system including those ensnared by the war on drugs, need only ask Edward Clary. Two months after his 18th birthday, Clary was stopped and searched in the St. Louis airport because he looked like a drug courier. At the time, he was returning home from visiting some friends in California. One of them persuaded him to take some drugs back home to St. Louis. Clary had never attempted to deal drugs before, and he had no criminal record. During the search, the police found crack cocaine and promptly arrested him. He was convicted in federal court and sentenced under federal laws that punish crack offenses 100 times more severely than offenses involving powder cocaine. A conviction for the sale of 500 grams of powder cocaine triggers a five-year mandatory sentence, while only five grams of crack triggers the same sentence. Because Clary had been caught with more than 50 grams of crack, less than two ounces, the sentencing judge believed he had no choice but to sentence him, an 18-year-old first-time offender, to a minimum of 10 years in federal prison. Clary, like defendants in other crack cases, challenged the constitutionality of the 100 to 1 ratio. His lawyers argued that the law is arbitrary and irrational because it imposes such vastly different penalties on two forms of the same substance. They also argued that the law discriminates against African Americans because the majority of those charged 
with crimes involving crack at that time were black. Approximately 93% of convicted crack offenders were black, 5% were white, whereas powder cocaine offenders were predominantly white. Every federal appellate court to have considered these claims had rejected them on the ground that Congress, rightly or wrongly, believed that crack was more dangerous to society. A view supported by the testimony of some drug abuse experts and police officers, the fact that most of the evidence in support of any disparity had since been discredited was deemed irrelevant. What mattered was whether the law had seemed rational at the time it was adopted. Congress, the courts concluded, is free to amend the law if circumstances have changed. Courts also had rejected claims that crack sentencing laws were racially discriminatory, largely on the grounds that the Supreme Court's decision in McCleskey v. Kemp precluded such a result. In the years following McCleskey, lower courts consistently rejected claims of race discrimination in the criminal justice system, finding that gross racial disparities do not merit strict scrutiny in the absence of evidence of explicit race discrimination. The very evidence unavailable in the era of colorblindness, Judge Clyde Cahill of the Federal District of Missouri, an African-American judge assigned Clary's case, boldly challenged the prevailing view that courts are powerless to address forms of race discrimination that are not overtly hostile. Cahill declared the 100 to 1 ratio racially discriminatory in violation of the 14th Amendment. Notwithstanding McCleskey, although no admission of racial bias or racist intent could be found in the record, Judge Cahill believed race was undeniably a factor in the crack sentencing laws and policies. He traced the history of the Get Tough movement and concluded that fear coupled with unconscious racism had led to a lynch mob mentality and a desire to control crime and those deemed responsible for it at any cost. Cahill acknowledged that many people may not believe they are motivated by discriminatory attitudes but argued that we all have internalized fear of young black men, a fear reinforced by media imagery that has helped to create a national image of the young black male as a criminal. The presumption of innocence is now a legal myth, he declared. The 100 to 1 ratio coupled with mandatory minimum sentencing provided by federal statute has created a situation that reeks with inhumanity and injustice. If young white males were being incarcerated at the same rate as young black males, the statute would have been amended long ago, Judge Cahill sentenced Clary, as if the drug he had carried home had been powder cocaine. The sentence imposed was four years in prison. Clary served his term and was released. The prosecution appealed Clary's case to the Eighth Circuit Court of Appeals, which reversed Judge Cahill in a unanimous opinion finding that the case was not even close. In the court's review, there was no credible evidence that the crack penalties 
were motivated by any conscious racial bigotry as required by McCleskey versus Kemp. The court remanded the case back to the district court for resentencing. Clary, now married and a father, was ordered back to prison to complete his 10-year term. Few challenges to sentencing schemes, patterns, or results have been brought since McCleskey, for the exercise is plainly futile. Futile. Yet in 1995, a few brave souls challenged the implementation of Georgia's two strikes and you're out sentencing scheme, which imposes life imprisonment for a second drug offense. Georgia's district attorneys, who have unbridled discretion to decide whether to seek this harsh penalty had invoked only had invoked it against only 1% of white defendants facing a second drug conviction but against 16% of black defendants the result was that 98 98.4% of those serving life sentences under the provision were black the Georgia Supreme Court ruled by a 4-3 to three vote that the stark racial disparity presented a threshold case of discrimination and required the prosecutors to offer a race-neutral explanation for the results. Rather than offer a justification, however, the Georgia Attorney General filed a petition for rehearing signed by every one of the state's 46 district attorneys, all of whom were white. The petition argued that the court's decision was a dire mistake. If the decision were allowed to stand and prosecutors were compelled to explain gross racial disparities such as the ones at issue, it would be a substantial step toward invalidating the death penalty and would paralyze the criminal justice system. Apparently because Severe and inexplicable racial disparities pervaded the system as a whole. Thirteen days later, the Georgia Supreme Court reversed itself, holding that the fact that 98.4% of the defendants selected to receive life sentences for repeat drug offenses were black required no justification. The court's new decision relied most almost exclusively on McCleskey versus Kemp. To date, not a single successful challenge has ever been made to racial bias in sentencing under McCleskey versus Kemp anywhere in the United States.